2: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to Oral Delights on a Wednesday night, show number forty three. I'd just like to welcome all newcomers to the sofa. We've had another hit on Boing Boing, which is just fantastic, to be quite honest. And I just want to say a kind of hello to everyone and just give a little kind of intro into what the Starship Sofa is and all it shows. And we start with me. I am Tony C. Smith, the host of Starship Sofa. We do, on the sofa, there is on a Wednesday night, we have Aura Delights. And that's basically Think of it as an audio science fiction magazine in the kind of realms of the greats, Asimov's and Analogue. You know, we have a little bit of poetry in here. We have short flash fiction. We have short stories. We have basically like an article written or narrated by someone. If there's someone out there who has an idea for a short article and wants to get in touch with us, you know, that's fine as well. Drop us a line, get in touch, you know, and we'll we'll take it from there. And especially flash fiction. If you have flash fiction, 1,600 words. It can be anything, you know, science fiction, fantasy, horror, or it can blur the edges there. Drop us an email, send it in. Send it in, actually, with the flash fiction. Send your flash fiction to starshipsover at gmail.com. You know, then I will send it on to Grant, our slush monkey, as he likes to call himself. So, yes, that's what kind of happens for Oral Delights. It's basically an online audio magazine. Then comes the weekend, and we have a few different shows each weekend over a period of of the month. First off is the original Starship Sofa show, and this is basically where I kind of check in depth and have a look at a certain writer from our past, you know, and I kind of mention some of his books and mention, you know, how he died, (laughs) if he's still alive, things like that. Then we get on to the engine room. Now, the engine room is really a kind of a behind-the-scenes look at how... Oral Delights gets put together. Do you know it's maybe me talking about the writers I've hit to try and get free stories off or how a narration becomes about or you know anything like that. You know, that's basically what the engine room is. And then you get on to the round table and that's where my good self and Fred, Fred Heimbohr, gentleman that he is, we talk about the kind of the stories in Oral Delights, you know, we kinda of discuss them, we go a little bit into depth with them and you know, did we like them, did we not like them? And, you know, we hit what I kind of like as well. You know, Fred will bring something else to the table. And we hit something else as well in this kind of science fiction world. So that's basically Starship Sofa and her offspring. We've got the Oral Delights, which is kind of, I guess, the main show card of the show. Then we have the three other shows, which run every other week. So that's basically Starship Sofa and her entity. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope, you know, you'll kind of spread the word and get the sofa's name about. And I think it's best if I kind of try and explain as well how the, the sofa kind of functions on a kind of a financial basis as well, just because, you know, if anyone's out there that hasn't understand or doesn't understand where it's kind of coming from and where kind of my philosophy on the area of this certain topic comes from. Basically, if you subscribe, make sure you subscribe to the Starship Sofa. That's the most important thing. That way you'll get basically nearly everything for free. You know, if once you subscribe, then the kind of shows just come down, you know, the automatic kind of way from iTunes or whichever podcast you catch them. So that way, you know you're going to get all the kind of shows. Oral Delights is always, always going to be free. Think of it like that. Oral Delights, because I'm getting all these stories kind of free that I'm getting donated. Everyone's kind of really donating their time and effort for free. Oral Delights is always going to be free. And if you go onto the main website, right-hand side of the corner... Have a look down there, there's kind of where there's a little bar that says Oral Delights. Click on that, and that's where, if you haven't listened to any of the shows from the Oral Delights section, they're always going to be there, and they're always going to be kind of just logged into there. So you can go down there anytime and just kind of download them shows. The other shows, after 10 weeks, they'll kind of fall off the bandwagon, if you know what I mean. So always, you'll always get them kind of free first, but after 10 weeks, they kind of fall off, and then they'll go into the shop. And that way, you kind of... You're always going to get them for free. And if anyone who wants them after that, then you go to the shop and they're there for 99 pence for a single show or 999 for the kind of whole kit and caboodle, if you like. Then we get into kind of, if you want to be and you want to help kind of support the Starship sofa. And this is honestly, this is where kind of it's most important for me. This is where kind of I know things are kind of helping to run the show. Do you know what I mean? And basically it's time. That's the most expensive kind of contribution in Starship Sofa is time, do you know what I mean? And I'm lucky I've got quite a bit of time on me hands but it's nice to kind of know that Starship Sofa's funds are covered, do you know? And to do this and help support Starship Sofa, the the best way is kind of the monthly donations and that way you'll get an extra show which is called the Starship Sanatorium and that's basically what I do for people who kind of, just to say like a way of thank you and a way of really, for me, to get how I'm feeling on the day. You know, I, I kind of do this show, and it's just basically all about my life, you know, and I guess some people, most people, don't want to kind of listen into the details of that, but it's just me saying thank you for the support of Starship Sofa. You know, it's just the, it's the only way I can kind of really say thank you. Do you know is do, like, an extra show or a special show for people who do the, the monthly donations? So honestly, if you're thinking about... Doing that, you know, now is a great time to do it. It's all set up. Go onto the website, click on the image for the Starship Sanatorium, and sign up, and that would be fantastic. And like I say, you know, for £2.50 a month, it helps so much. Just making sure that the Starship Server carries on the way she's going, you know. it Every week it's kind of seemed to be picking up memento, you know, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I keep on, I'm sometimes kind of frightened because it gets out of control, you know. But supporting it. Is one of them ways where it kind of keeps everything under in. I keep talking in kind of space terms, you know what I mean? It keeps keeping everything under a kind of even keel. So there we go. That is the Starship Sofa. <laughs> So I will give you a heads up what is in tonight's science fiction audio magazine, The Starship Sofa. We have main fiction by none other than Michael Marshall Smith. Yes, get that. We have poetry by Bruce Boston, Riesling winner. Flash fiction comes from one of our listeners, Cyril Simsa. We have our fantastic Mr. Jim Campanella. With his look into what's been happening in the science world this month. And I've been giving some Jim some more stories, so look out, yes. <laughs> Bless him, he's got a newborn baby. And everything's good <laughs> everything's gotta he can't record record, because the house, as he says, the house is like in an uproar, you know, everyone's kinda shouting to him, he's gotta have a perfect silence, so he can only do it on a certain time of <laughs> a certain night. So Jim, y- yes, we are there with you, sir. And let's not forget Mr. Grant Stone. He has a newborn baby, Rowan Arthur Stone. Yeah, so congratulations to Grant. I've lost him now. Army oh, my I starting to have kids, for God's sake. I'll lend mine out if it helps, if there's any kind of loan system going on. Grant, congratulations, sir. Fantastic. So first up, we have a poem by none other than Bruce Boston. Bruce Boston has a new book out called The Gardener's Tale, and this is what the are saying about, praise for, Gardner's Tale, a gripping dystopia wickedly extrapolated from our present. Boston brings to bear his narrative genius on this noir tale of a love triangle in a society gone mad, probing the way technology and science alter our reality. Transcending genre, The Gardner's Tale combines suspense and breathtaking plot twists, Involving, Compelling, and Masterwork. That was by Mary Tazzullo. So I hope you go and check out Bruce Boston's new book. Links on the website.
3: Heavy Weather by Bruce Boston. If gravity changed like the weather, covering the planet in waves and pockets, fronts and depressions, there would be days on which we could not move an inch. We would lie helpless. "'strapped to the slowly turning earth by a rain of weight "'that limited both our breath and movement. "'We would have time to consider the nature of such an existence, "'to daydream about an end of the storm "'and those perfect feather days "'when we could fly like birds over cities and forests "'as if we had wings.' first appeared in Asimov's Science Fiction Magazine 2004, Asimov's Reader's Choice Awards 2005.
2: Don't forget, all copyright is Mr. Bruce Boston and Julie Davis. Julie, thank you very much. I've been keeping Julie very busy. Look out for some of her narrated work coming soon on the sofa. Don't forget to pop over to Forgotten Classics, where Julie hosts her own podcast. Again, links on the site. So we now come on to the Flash Fiction, which is by Cyril Simsa. Give a little heads up for Cyril. He was born and brought up in London and for a while pretended to study zoology, though in actual fact he rarely left the obscure regions of the university library and has rarely come closer to doing any real science than various holiday jobs at the National History Museum. Since 1992, he has lived in Prague, where he shuffled students around the borders of former Austria and Hungary, been hovering around the fringes of SF world for much longer than really is sensible, and having contributed to reviews and articles to a wide variety of genre publications like Foundation, Locust, the Encyclopedia of Fantasy and Wormwood. His story credits are somewhat rarer. <laughs> Not as rare as mine, sir. But they include Darkness Rising, Here and Now, new writings in The Fantastic, and an up-and-coming piece in Weird Tales. He's also a published translations of Czech Writers. And I just kind of, I seen there as well, I mentioned to Cyril. He was published in Here and Now, and that's where I got one of my sto- I might have got even a couple of stories. It's been that long ago. And I thought I was in number two, but it seems I was in number four. So, if anyone tracked down Here and Now magazine, you will see some of my work in there. So, without further ado, the Starship Sofa and Her Oral Delights presents
4: Like the First Morning by Cyril Simsa. With hindsight, of course, it would have been best if we had left the vault as we had found it. We, that is, humanity. But these kinds of judgments are easy after the fact. At the time, the discovery was too new, too exciting, too finely attuned to our simian sense of curiosity to make abstinence a real option. I mean, what would you do if you found a secret underground tunnel half buried in the Martian sands guarded by massive, rosy red blocks of carved granite, covered with incomprehensible hieroglyphs. Everyone from H. Ryder Haggard to H. P. Lovecraft to Howard Carter had pre-programmed us to open the box instead of ambling off home with the money. Transgression is the oldest show on earth, and unfortunately, it's one of those appetites we tend to carry around with us, even when we are away from home. And so, overcome by boyhood memories of vicarious adventures on a dying planet, of empty canals, distant mountains static and poised as alien seed pods in the thin Martian air, of crumbling, dust-blown citadels and abandoned jetties, Mission Control sent in a team of diggers. Only robots, to be sure. They were careless, not crazy. But it was enough. It was a breach, nonetheless. For a while, the whole show was tremendously exciting. After all those fruitless decades of SETI, the billions of hours we had invested in watching the skies, who would have thought our first real encounter would be right here at the heart of the solar system? That the universe would bring itself to our doorstep? For several weeks, the robot webcams were broadcast live, and we marveled at the streamlined, Art Deco-like interiors, as the professor's supercomputers cracked the code of one lock after another. Nobody paused to wonder why the vault, whatever it might turn out to contain, had been so securely shut away, or what the hieroglyphs might be trying to tell us. Nobody asked whether the complex was meant as a gift or a warning, a resource or a particularly ingenious kind of flytrap for anyone both advanced and foolish enough to open it until, that is, one fine day, Mars went offline in a cloud of sand and static, just after launching its whole complement of escape pods and shuttles. A few days later, the planet changed color from red to black, and Phobos and Deimos fell out of the sky into the maelstrom, along with what remained of our various ingenious satellites, and then, in the unusual manner of slow-time, real physical travel, we waited— While the debris crept towards us across the tabula rasa of the interplanetary abyss. Strangely, it was the dust that arrived first, scattering across the leading edge of the northern hemisphere like the ashes of all our aspirations. We watched it eating into our upper atmosphere like salt, safe behind the hermetic seals of the Selinabad moon base. And for once, we felt fortunate for having drawn one of those much-detested six-month tours of duty on the near side of the moon, with the winking blue eye of the earth constantly overhead to remind us of what we had left behind. Our friends and families had no such luck. The transformation spread across the sky like a stain, wherever the invading spores found water, turning the air into soup and the seas into protoplasm pulling down the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the presumptive lords of their manor, swallowing up the huge monocultures of the wheat fields and the rice paddies and the alcohol farms, drinking down what remained of the earth's tuna fisheries and the crinkly polychaetes of the mid-oceanic ridges and the lowly amoeba. All across the world, life exploded into an orgy of budding and blending and a kind of hysterical meiosis, and we, from our airy, could do nothing but watch and wonder, and eventually mourn, for everything we had ever known and loved dissolved before our eyes into a pit, an arabesque, an absence, a darkness that seemed to swallow even the stars. And yet, for all that it was terrible, it was not without a certain perverse beauty, a fearful exaltation, for what were we witnessing, if not the ultimate release of the earth's true sexuality repressed all those eons ago by the high priests of some uptight genetic patriarchy? It was as if we had been granted the key to the true molecular gospel, the secret of life after death, the sudden rebaptism of every past generation all the way back to the Precambrian, and the genes called out to us to join them. To give ourselves up to the new creation, to merge with the Godhead as it prepared to fling its tiny apostles out into the void. The great black mass that had once been the earth was ripening, and soon I knew it would burst with the explosive force of a thousand sporangia. And how long could we then hope to preserve our virginity? How good were our seals? And how long could we hope to keep going without new supplies from below? And as the orbital stations tumbled, one by one, into the giddy depths, we reached a decision. In the hours or days remaining, we would send a warning, for radio waves were still faster than DNA. Matter is still unable to keep pace with the gilded arrow of light. And so, dear listener, know this. If you cherish your lives, your families, your civilizations, lock up your planets. Lock up your daughters. Lock up your very ribosomes. Guard your base pairs and enforce the chastity of matter, for the end of the world is coming, and I know you've all heard this before from any number of lunatics and false prophets, but this time it's true. God and the universe love you with a polyamory so absolute they thrill to the touch of your every molecule, and their covenant is again the rainbow, a rainbow of purines, codons, and nucleotides. They love you with the same intensity they used to, before our ancestors learned to bow down before the golden calf of our separate and discreet biologies. And in their love, they have thrown open the doorways of the secret chambers on the far side of the mitochondria of madness heralding the return of a biology beyond the nucleus, of the lightning-fired Shangri-La, of the very first cytosine in the first dewfall on the very first day. For, if there is but one thing we can be sure of in this brave new world of ours, as we hurtle down the spiraling tracks of our rabbit holes to the pot of gold at the base of our chromosomes, it is that we are loved, God and the universe hold us in a communion that goes right to the infinite helix of their heart of darkness. And before we know it, they will very probably love us to death.
2: And there you go. Cyril, thank you very much. Don't forget, copyright is Cyril Simsa. If anybody else wants to send in a flash fiction, it could be you that comes on. Diane, fine narration. Do pop over to Diane's site and say hello. Links on the main site. Next port of call is Jim Campanella's classroom for his science update. Jim, hello sir.
5: Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another chapter of Science News Update with me, Jim Campanella. Tonight's episode is a bit different from the previous several episodes that I've sent off to you. Previously, I let the news of the day sort of direct me in my presentations to you. Tonight, I decided to set the tone myself with a bit of self-direction. My decision on tonight's news stories was based on two things that occurred. First, a conversation with my brother-in-law, who is a psychologist and social worker. And second, I finally finished the novel Glass House by Charles Strauss a book that I was very impressed by until, in my opinion, the ending went off the rails a bit and was not as thoroughly satisfying as it could have been. Also, I could not help but think of Peter Watt's Starship Sofa commentary every time one of the characters was disassembled and backed up onto a computer memory and then reassembled. By the end, it kind of creeped me out, truthfully. But this is not a literary critique, and I'm not qualified as a literary critic. What is the point that I am so painfully trying to make? And what did Glass House and my conversation with my brother-in-law have in common? To put it simply, they both brought up memory and memory erasure. That is, induced memory loss as a therapeutic agent. First in the book Glass House, the main character Robin, and many of the other characters have had their memories purposely erased of many of the most traumatic recollections that they have undergone over the last few years of a dreadful war. This memory erasure is not only common, but an accepted way of dealing with trauma in Strauss's post-singular society in which people live hundreds of years and are essentially immortal. As a biologist, I was fascinated by the idea of being able to go in and surgically remove specific bits and pieces of memory in order to bring about the psychological well-being of a person. Well, I think the idea of being able to alter synaptic relationships and structure is seriously cool. At the same time, the idea is also very disturbing because of its possible exploitation and misuse. One of my favorite SF authors, Jack Chalker, actually wrote extensively on the abuse of such technology, long before Strauss did. But, at the very same time, the value of such an ability would be beyond measure in a clinical setting i would have pretty much sorry forgotten about that memory erasure stuff at that point if it was not for the curious conversation with my brother-in-law jerome jerome told me that some drug companies are presently in the testing stages of pharmaceuticals that actually do have the ability to help erase or remove old long-term memories of traumas he told me that since those old memories only stay alive if reinforced and obsessed upon the drugs can help to weaken that reinforcement. The drugs are supposed to help remove the traumas and aid patients with recovery of their mental health once the root cause of their problems is gone. In short, the drugs induce those synaptic patterns to become memories of memories, and hence to eventually be forgotten. The so-called talking cure of Freud's can take years to get to that point. So it's obviously a major potential breakthrough in mental health treatment. That conversation brought to mind Strauss, since I was still in the process of reading Glass House at that time. It didn't take much to remind me of Strauss and his surgeon confessors who act as therapists after memory redaction. So I just had to delve into the science literature and find out, what is the latest status of drugs and technique that can erase memory? We are certainly nowhere near Strauss's society where a memory may be redacted like a surgeon removing a mole. But where are we on that spectrum? First, let me point out that we are not talking about brainwashing or hypnosis or anything oddly radical. Yes, you can cause serious memory loss or even stimulation of false memories if you screw up the patient's worldview with hallucinogens and additional mental trauma. But we are not talking Manchurian candidate stuff here. We're talking about pharmaceutically Getting rid of self reinforcing and potentially nightmarish memories that the patient would be happier to be rid of. Not harrowing deprogramming or reprogramming of any kind. Is there anything out there that can erase memories and help you to forget? I mean, besides the temporary oblivion of eight scotch and sodas. There are several things, actually, but let's start with a chemical that may seem a bit odd because it's a sugar. You would not expect a sugar to affect memory, but if it's the correct sugar, it will. Long-term memory is enhanced as a result of the strengthening of neuronal connections and the remodeling of the way that synapses of the brain are attached to one another. Fucose 1,2-galactose is a sugar that is used as part of the proteins in neuronal cells as a kind of molecular placekeeper to ensure that neuronal growth is accomplished and accomplished in the correct three-dimensional manner. Proteins do much of the work in cells, but sometimes glycoproteins, that is, proteins with sugars attached into a single molecule, are just as important. When galactose, another sugar, is given to brain cells, it can block the incorporation of the fucose galactose into the glycoprotein as they are being produced. Not only are the non-standard glycoproteins produced, but memory loss is induced as well. Yes, you can induce amnesia with the treatment of the brain cells with this sugar. Stacey Calovadouris and her collaborators found this out in 2005 and published their results in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. The D-type galactose reduces neuronal extension and synapse formation. Why? Researchers still do not entirely understand what's happening at the molecular level in the treated neurons. Calvaduris has suggested that two major brain synapse proteins, in fact called synapsin 1A and 1B, are involved in neurotransmitter release and synaptogenesis. That's the creation of the growth of synapses, and that D-gal actually blocks their fucosylation. And once that fucosylation is blocked, fucosylation, the addition of the fucose sugar, once it's blocked, their full activity leading to synaptic changes, is blocked as well. Also, since we don't know exactly what's going on there, a Chinese group led by J. Lu in 2007 in the Journal of Biochemistry and Pharmacology suggested that high levels of D. galactose in the bloodstream actually cause oxidative stress, which causes extensive changes in synaptic morphology by inducing something called programmed cell death. In rats, they found that the greater the levels of D-galactose in the bloodstream, the worse the effects on long-term memory. Well, that sounds pretty bad. But the amnesia is reversible. Once you actually take away or allow the D-galactose to be broken down, the memory comes back. Since its discovery several years ago, drug companies have been experimenting with D-galactose compounds and decided that if treated over a long enough period along with some directed memory de-enforcement, then it's possible to help humans forget the nasty bits of their past. I don't know exactly how successful they're going to be, nor can I predict the long-term effects of this treatment, but it should be interesting to see how it turns out. By the way, just a tiny bit off topic. You may remember from your high school chemistry classes that molecules actually may be left-handed or right-handed. This is something called chirality. For example, the building blocks of every protein in our body are left-handed, and they've been that way for several billion years. Sugars, on the other hand, have been primarily right-handed for the same amount of time. It seems kind of odd, therefore, that D-galactose, which is right-handed, has such a nasty physiological effect, despite being a pretty simple sugar that is found normally. You would have expected such an effect from its left-handed mirror image, not the right-handed version. Another treatment that can extinguish or redact memory is one that works in another area of the brain, the amygdala. There's evidence that the amygdala plays an important role in emotional conditioning, so it wouldn't be an obvious target for treatment in so-called experimental extinction of memory. The brain neurotransmitter, gamma-amino butyric acid, called GABA for short, G-A-B-A, is actually thought to play an important role in damping down or inhibiting so-called aversive memories in the amygdala. When a chemical called musimol was administered, the aversive memories were actually weakened in rats. See, the musimol turns on GABA receptors in the neuron. That means that by inducing the neurons to think that GABA is present in the brain, the bad memories were blocked from getting into long-term memory. When those receptors were actually blocked chemically so they couldn't turn on, there was no memory loss. Again, a better understanding of how GABA causes this memory block in the amygdala could lead to treatments for phobias, panic disorders, even post-traumatic stress disorders. So I've got one more example of a memory-zapping drug that may be in our future. GABA causes a memory block at the amygdala and the midbrain, but the next drug does its work on the forebrain or the neocortex. And the neocortex is presumed to be the ultimate repository of many types of long-term memory. The neocortex is the most recently evolved of all the brain structures, and the one that's responsible for us being the big-brained apes that we are. It's involved in higher functions like sensory perception, uh, the generation of motor commands, spatial reasoning, conscious thought, and, and in humans, language. The researchers Shema, Saktor, and Dudai, in late 2007, wrote a paper in the journal Science entitled Rapid Erasure of Long-Term Memory Associations in the Cortex by an Inhibitor of PKM-Zeta. Now, if that is not a scary title, I don't know what is. So what is PKM, and why is inhibiting it so bad? Well, PKM is the enzyme protein kinase M, The kinase PKM-zeta is specifically expressed or made in the neocortex of the brain. Now, a kinase is an enzyme that adds phosphates to other molecules. And a phosphate is a phosphorus molecule with several oxygens attached. Now, one thing that most people don't think about is how a cell can signal enzymes in long, complicated pathways to be turned on and off. Well, there are a myriad of ways this can be done, but one of the main ways that activation and deactivation of signals can be transferred is by the use of phosphorylation. By adding a phosphate onto a protein, it may activate or deactivate it, depending on the situation and what protein it is. Because protein kinases have profound effects on a cell, their activity is highly regulated. Kinases themselves are turned on and off by phosphorylation, sometimes by the kinase itself and in a process called autophosphorylation or by binding to activator proteins or inhibitors proteins or small molecules, or by controlling the location in the cell relative to their substrates. Deregulated kinase activity, that is a kinase that's no longer functioning correctly, is a frequent cause of disease, particularly cancer, where kinases regulate many of the aspects that control cell growth and movement and death. So the upshot is that phosphorylation is pretty important in cell signaling. This brings us back to the experiment. So what did Shema, Saktor, and Dudai do? Well, they injected taste-aversion condition rats with a protein kinase inhibitor called ZIP. Now ZIP stands for Z-inhibitory peptide. In this case, the ZIP very specifically kept the protein kinase M-zeta enzyme, from functioning. Within a very short time, the rats forgot how much they hated the taste of lithium chloride. The rats, however, were still able to learn and remember to become averse to other things. So the Zip did not block their ability to remember new things, just erase their long-term memory. It's a bit like wiping part of a hard drive on a computer, but leaving the RAM intact. By the way, shouldn't it be called unzip and not zip if it erases memory okay sorry for the bad joke here is the scary thing folks this treatment unlike the first two does cause permanent memory loss the zip treatment permanently erased a long-term memory in the rat neocortex okay well i guess that's great huh we finally found a treatment that works works quickly works very efficiently Unfortunately, it does not seem very selective. The zip caused the loss of the aversion memory, but it's unclear what other memories it may have done away with as well. The loss of random memories is not something that most of us would consider a good thing. The study of Shema and the rest suggests that long term memory storage in the cortex requires constant maintenance, in which the presence of PKM zeta is crucial. It's possible that PKM zeta activity sustains synaptic contacts and that disrupting the process may actually cause memory to disappear. But again, researchers don't know exactly what's going on here at the molecular level. It's not even clear what memories the loss of the PKM zeta activity redacts or if there's any kind of specificity. As I noted previously, you don't want random memories eradicated. The researchers are still trying to figure out whether it is just taste memories or whether it's more general than that. At any rate, the findings at least offer the possibility that manipulating PKM zeta might be used therapeutically to eliminate long-term memories. Certainly PKM sounds like the most direct manipulator of memories that I've reported on so far, so it must be the best clinical hope presently, right? Truthfully, I have no idea. I'm not sure any other researcher has a better idea than me But one thing is for sure, I'm making this sound way too simple. As any real neurobiologist or pharmaceutical psychiatrist will tell you, this stuff is complicated. We're talking about altering and changing the most complex organ that there is. We're not talking about removing an appendix or even a heart. We are talking about the most evanescent of all things in the universe, memory. How do you gently redact memory, and will it ever really be possible to just get rid of the bad bits and leave the good. I suppose that once we can actually upload our memories into a computer, as in Strauss' future, along with ourselves, that we will finally have a complete control over every memory circuit, good and bad. Post-singular humans, if you really want to call them human at that point, will have that advantage. But if you read The Glass House or other post-singular views of the future... Just having the ability to remove bad memories may not make our lives any easier. In fact, it will complicate our lives beyond belief, because once you start to remove memories, they can be just as easily replaced with ones that may or may not be true. Truthfully, it gives me the shivers. Well, thanks for listening. As always, take care, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
2: Jim, thank you so much for that. That was quite, um, especially for me, to be quite honest, you know who normally are most often is battling a little bit of anxiety every now and again. Wouldn't that be nice? If there was just something you just pop in your mouth and just oh, wipe them, kind of, hiss that history away from us. Oh, a dream. Anyway, Jim, thank you very much. So next we get on to the main fiction of the night by none other than Michael Marshall Smith. Michael Marshall Smith was born in England in 1965. He spent his childhood in the United States, South Africa and Australia before returning to the UK. He attended Chigwell School in Essex and then went to King's College, Cambridge where he read philosophy and social and political science. His first published story was The Man Who Drew Cats which won the British Fantasy Award in 1991 for Best Short Story. He has been publishing postscripts. His first novel, Only Forward, which was a fantastic story, was published in 1994 and won the August Durlith Award for Best Novel 1995. The novel The Straw Men was the first to be written under the shortened name Michael Marshall. This change in name was originally due to the publishing of another book of the same name in 2001 by Martin J. Smith. However, Michael decided to use the split to offer the possibility of publishing different genre of books under two names. Modern day novels come under Michael Marshall and horror science fiction as Michael Marshall Smith, similar to Ian m Banks. Narration today comes from Paul Campbell. He is a writer, director, producer of original sci-fi audio drama series, Esther Vevan's Legacy series. He's previously narrated Red Planet for SF Audio's Audiobook Challenge. He's been involved in amateur dramatics for the last five years with the Dunfermline Drama Society, Scotland's longest-running amateur dramatic society, founded in 1884. This season, they're doing the production of The Graduate in November, which he is directing. Paul says the bills get paid by maintaining a wide range of IT systems for a local college, where he's been for the last ten years. All of Paul's work can be found at his website, which is cosmas.co.uk. Please pop over to our main site, and links are on there to Paul's site, where you will find forums, blogs, and promos. A great site. So, without further ado, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents...
0: The 17th Kind. By Michael Marshall Smith Hi, I'm James Richard. No, not Richards, but Richard. Dumb name, I think you'll agree. No, it's okay, really. I've had many years to savour it, to laboriously spell it out over the phone and find parcels arriving at my door marked for Richard James anyhow. I didn't even make it up. It's not a stage name. My parents gave it to me when I was born, bless them, along with a straight nose, wavy brown hair, and next to no talent at all. Why? I asked my father one time, back when I was young in years and full of hope. Why in the name of sweet Jesus did you call me James Richard? He stared down at me, confused, and I belatedly realised he was in the same predicament. His name was David. David Richard. Maybe when he was young, his peers also snarled. Hey, shithead, why have you got two first names? For a moment, I felt a strange and poignant affinity with my dad, as if we were holding hands down the years. Two small boys, a generation apart, who'd shouldered a similar burden. Then, I kicked him in the shin. Anyway, this isn't about my name. This is about what I do. And what I do is... I'm a presenter on a shopping channel. No, go ahead. Laugh all you like. Just the stupidest job in the whole damned universe, right? Well, you know, screw you. If I hear one more person say a chimp could do my job, then I'm going to take some innovative and durable kitchen implement, retailing in stores for $19.99, but available for this hour only at the low, low price of $11.99, plus postage and packing, and stuff it up their ass. This is a skill. It really is. And it saved my life. I wound up working in home shopping via a circuitous route. Everyone does. Nobody wakes up one morning thinking, Hey, I want to be in live cable selling people shit they don't need! Or perhaps they do, in which case they genuinely are stupid. Maybe they think it counts as television and is therefore glamorous. It's not. The point of being on the tube is first, to earn big bucks. Second, to be recognised in the street. Anyone who tells you different is a moron. What? They instead want the unsociable hours, the danger of being sacked at any moment, the ever-present threat of exposure and embarrassment not to mention the joy of standing under hot lights while hairy-backed yahoos point cameras and swap impenetrable, menial jokes behind your back. The money and cable really isn't that great and the people you actually want to recognise you are pretty young things of the opposite sex or of the same sex, whatever. You work a shopping channel, then these are not the people who are going to be recognising you. They're going to be, well, I'll come to that. I was an actor originally. I was profoundly average. And there's only so many times you can emote your heart out to scraggly bearded directors to be told you're insufficiently tall, or Turkish looking, or female, or frankly even any good. So I switched to stand-up as a kind of holding pattern. Easier to get gigs, but the money stinks like fish and I couldn't write my own material, so I was going nowhere fast. Finally, there was a spell on a local radio news station for which cattle made up the main demographic. That was really fucking grim. It was while I was there, reading out the weather and listening to the neurons in my brain popping one by one, that I saw a trade ad for a presenter on a cable channel. I combed the straw out of my hair, jumped on a plane and went and did my thing. I dug deep, I gave it everything
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at
0: airbnb.com slash host. I had. I was desperate. I got the gig. Now, if you don't do any home shopping, then I'm going to have to explain the deal to you. If you do, then just skip read or have a sandwich or something. I'll be back in a minute. How it works is this. The channels basically have a pile of goods which they want to sell. Pots and pans, jewellery, gardening implements, technical gizmos for the home, limited edition Star Trek bath mats. The buy me inducements they offer are several fold. First, the goods are cheap. No store overheads, plus... The advantages of buying in bulk. Two, you just pick up the phone and give a credit card number. Help, just your name if you're a returning customer. And the thing will be with you in a couple of days, without you even having to get up off your couch. I assume when it drops through your mailbox you have to get up and go fetch it, or maybe these people have someone who does that for them too. The third inducement is people like me. The presenters. Your friend on the screen. As the audience, this is what you see. A live picture of the object in question, with a panel at one side telling you the cost and the product code and just how beguilingly cheap it is compared to normal in-store prices. You listen to a voiceover with cutaways to the presenter's face and upper body as he or she tells you how much the thing costs, in case you can't read. How many are left to buy? Only three quarters of stock left now. This one's moving just incredibly quickly, everybody. So hurry, hurry, pick up your phone and make that call. Operators are standing by. And also explains to the hard of thinking why they should want the damn thing in the first place. If it's a ring, for example, my job would be to remind you that you could put it on your finger and wear it for cosmetic purposes in order to enhance your attractiveness and or perceived status. You think I'm kidding? I'm really not. Sounds easy, but wait. Sometimes you may have to fill 20 minutes with this crap. You try talking for half that time, non-stop, with no help, no cues, and moreover, with people pointing cameras at you and some fool chattering in your ear, explaining why someone would want to buy an enormous cookie jar shaped like a chicken and you'll begin to see it's not as easy as it sounds. Most of the presenters cheat. They'll repeat themselves endlessly, rehearsing the remaining stock levels time and again just to give themselves something extra to say. I never did that. I never dried. I also never said anything like, Today's special value today is really special, as one of my colleagues once did. Nor... In the 16th century was the Renaissance, and garnet was a stone. Another of my personal favourites. I didn't do these things, because when I found myself in this weird job, it was like I'd come home. I knew it was worthless. But on the other hand, I thought, hey, perhaps this is something I could be good at. Maybe this is a corner of an ill-regarded field which I could make forever. James Richard. Most of the stuff the channel pushed was skull-crushingly dull. But that didn't mean you couldn't talk about it. Okay, so it might be a hideous hexagonal pendant in faux gold with a minuscule pseudo-emerald in the middle, but you could point out how delightfully hexagonal it was, and how neatly the emeraldite sat in its exact centre. You could measure it with a special Home Mall Ruler, just in case someone in the audience didn't understand perspective and was worried that the pendant was as big as a house. You could tell them how many different occasions they'd find to wear it, and list them, and generally evoke just how unspeakably lovely their lives would become, all because of this $20 piece of costume jewellery. The whole time you're working, you have the director talking at you, relaying sales information through a plug in your ear. But I mentioned availability twice, Three times in each hour, at most. Just enough to keep people on their toes, to convince them they ought to get working that phone. And you can believe this, when I was doing the selling, the units started shifting. That sounds arrogant, I guess. Well, maybe, and so what. For all the times some shithead casting agent dumped on me. For all the times I died on a small stage because the jokes I wrote weren't funny. For all the times I was shown I couldn't do a job well enough to be proud of myself. Now I had home mall to show I could do something. So what if no one respected it? I could do it. That's what counts. Which is why, after a couple of months with the station, I found myself doing a lot of the specials. Every evening there'd be a product the station had some particular deal on. They'd wheel on the manufacturer or some other front person with the promise of shifting extra units and stick him or her on the screen to demonstrate the product. These slots lasted a whole hour and of course needed a professional to guide the civilian through the live television experience. To keep things running smoothly and increasingly that professional was me talking about something for 10 minutes is one thing an hour is a whole different kettle of ball games the big factor you have in your favor is that you aren't just a talking torso anymore you're there live on camera standing next to some guy demonstrating a cd player or salad shooter or car range you can use everything about yourself not just your voice employ your body to suggest things Use hand movements. Shrug. If you weren't too proud, you could even pout winsomely. God knows I've pouted on occasion, winsomely and otherwise. All that helped, but the specials were still tough, and I enjoyed the challenge. As the months went on, I might resort to a little cocaine on occasion to keep myself humming along, but my main juice was pure adrenaline. That and a genuine drive to dance the jig of semi-relevance. To keep the balls in the air when they didn't deserve to be up there in the first place. To just keep talking. To communicate with the viewer at home. Once the products were shifting nicely, you see, we'd start taking calls from people who were buying the merchandise. Initially, this was the part of the job that most freaked me out. I mean, who the hell were these people? What were they doing calling a shopping channel at 1.30am on a Wednesday night, to tell us why they'd bought some neo-Bosnium trinket. Didn't they have beds to go to? Didn't they have lives? 95% of the callers were middle-aged women too, which I found especially hard to get my head around. I could have understood guys in their 20s, maybe. Too stoned to change the channel, or just thinking they were being ironic. I even suggested to Rod that we should have a stoner hour where we sold big bags of candy and potato chips, along with small glittering baubles which might appeal to the chemically enhanced mind. People would call up in droves, go to bed later and forget all about it, and then be completely bemused when boxes of munchies arrived a couple of days later. We could probably get away with not sending out the product at all, which would be a big fat profit all round. The idea wasn't taken up which I think reveals commercial timidity. I quickly realised that taking the calls was a crucial part of the selling process, however, and made it my speciality, because nobody called in to say that something they'd bought was a piece of shit. They rang in to say it was great. They wanted to say something nice, which meant that everyone else listening got a ringing product endorsement from someone who was just like them. I would imagine these callers, dumpy and dough faced sitting in darkened rooms around the country, their faces lit by the flicker of the selling screen. Just occasionally, I believed that once they'd finished talking to us, they abruptly switched off, like abandoned robots, their heads tilting forward onto their chests, hands folded in their laps, and that they would remain that way until the following night, when they got a chance to talk about their obsessions again. Sometimes this impression was stronger, and I felt I could imagine them all at once, all sitting in their rooms, bathed in the twinkling eeriness of television light, eyes focused on the screen, their loneliness and need pouring back through the cables towards me. God bless cocaine. The job settled into a rhythm. I'd do a couple of sessions late afternoon or early evening, just standard stuff. Then, at the beginning of the late shift, somewhere between 10pm and 1am, I'd do a special. The late shift is when the real action starts, the time when the heavy hitters of couch potato purchasing settle down with their buckets of soda and sacks of potato chips and get into their stride. The products varied widely, but that was part of the fun. The manufacturers were also mixed, from a monosyllabic sauté pan dude who said maybe three words all hour, to a woman I worked with on a home organ who was damned nearly as good as me. Christ, did that woman know a lot about organs. I thought she'd never shut up. Then, okay, here we go. The night in question, I was doing a special for a cleaning product called Super Shine. Some guy from Texas had spent ten years working on polishes and finally came up with a real humdinger. The stuff had been on the channel once before, but this was the first time it had got its own segment. When I heard what the special was that evening, I thought even I was going to have some trouble. Metal polish. It's useful. It may even be essential to some people. But say what you like, it's really just not very exciting. An hour before we were due to go on air, I dropped by the green room to meet the guy. Rusty, his name was. He was about 50, grey-haired, bearded, and kind of heavy round the gut, but affable enough in a good old boy kind of way. And wow, did he like his job. I'm not kidding. Polishing was this guy's life. He'd got into town early that morning, and straight away gone trawling junk stores and antiquaries, picking up old bits of silver and copper to use on the show. He showed me how to use the product. The polish was a, a silvery paste which came in a very small tin. You put a subliminal amount on a rag, wiped it over your metal in a desultory way, and then rubbed it off. And it worked. It worked to a freakish degree. I was genuinely impressed. He took an old coin, so dirty and corroded, it looked more like a disc of wood. And after about ten seconds, it looked better than the day it popped off the mint. I relaxed. Okay, so polish was dull. But this stuff worked by Jesus. Selling something that works is never too hard. I hung out for a while, took a couple of minutes in the john to tip my chemical balance in the direction of enthusiasm, then got the five-minute call. I murmured encouraging things to Rusty, who had begun to shake slightly, and strode out under the lights. I don't know why I did that, because we weren't on air. They always cut in with you already in position. I always stride on anyway. Call it professional pride. Then the floor manager counts you down. The light on camera one goes red, and you're on. It's time. Suddenly, it's not just you and some perspiring southerner. It's you and the rest of the world. Well, the world that's up and watching a shopping channel at 12.02am anyway. I started the hour with a searching but light-hearted meditation on the amount of old metalware in people's houses, and went on to muse how folks would get a lot more fun out of antique stores and the art sales if it weren't for the prospect of having to clean their prizes when they got them home. I didn't mention the other metal in people's houses, the silverware, furniture, even the facials and DVD players. Not yet. Throw out all your ideas in the first minute on a special And by twenty after the hour, you're going to be treading water until you drown. I segued direct from this onto Rusty doing his thing. He was okay, even pretty good. There was something so down home about him that you couldn't help watching. Christ, you were soon thinking, this guy's fucking obsessed. If he gets off this much on polishing, there's got to be something in it. Let me have a go. He took a pair of old candlesticks, equally tarnished. Talking slowly, he described the process of using his wonder polish, demonstrating as he went. I didn't do much more than provide an echo every now and then. Okay, so you put it on a cloth, right? Because I knew as the hour progressed, he'd run out of steam. A minute later, one of the candlesticks was looking brighter than the day it was made. I kind of preferred it with the tarnish, to be honest. For me, taking an antique and making it look new was like sprucing up Stonehenge with fibreglass. But I knew that the audience would feel differently. And Rod, the director, was already chattering happily in my earpiece. The calls had started right away, and Super Shine was out of the starting blocks. For the next fifteen minutes, Rusty tirelessly polished and buffed. I tried it myself, of course, affably pouring the full weight of my personality into restoring the shine to a variety of pieces of old trash, while being careful to make it clear that James Richard, like the viewer at home, had no pre-existing expertise in the field. We did gold. We did silver. We did copper. We did chrome. They all worked spectacularly. We actually had to start being careful about the way we held the pieces because the glitter was throwing the cameras off. 25 minutes in, I took over from Rusty, helping him out of a circuitous ramble he'd trapped himself into. The calls were really flooding in by now. Supershine was shifting, big time. It was time to start talking to people. Our first call was typical. Laurie from Black Falls rang to say that she'd bought Supershine when it had been on before, and it had changed her life. She described in detail how she'd polished everything in her street and how happy that had made her. She'd called that evening to buy stocks for her sisters, daughters and friends. She was so patently sincere that I let her run on for quite some while, knowing she was doing our job for us. Rusty nodded benignly, dislodging a small droplet of sweat from his hairline, which rolled slowly onto his forehead. I covertly signalled the director to switch to a close-up product shot, and Mandy, the makeup up girl, darted in to powder us both. No more than six seconds, then back to a medium shot of the two of us, and all the while I kept the banter going with the caller until she'd said all she had to say. Laurie finally stopped yakking and went off to polish her dog's head or something, and we took a call from Anne and Reynard. Anne had called because she was concerned that Supershine might harm her gold-plated jewellery. Rusty whipped a piece of plated stuff off the pile and polished it there and then. It came up beautifully, and Anne was mollified. She thanked us for talking to her and was transferred to the purchasing operators. It was a natural point to take five, and so I signalled to Rod and talked us into a short break, giving just a hint of some of the exciting polishing action still to come. As soon as the ident was on the screen, I winked at Rusty and disappeared behind the set and into the green room. None of the production staff batted an eyelid. I'd left a line chopped and ready on the one table which wasn't covered with crap from previous shows, and so it was a matter of a moment to get the marching dust into my bloodstream. I strode back into the studio, taking care to grab a glass of water for cover, and stood next to Rusty. Going just great and enthused. Just had a word with the guys. You're selling by the shitload! Rusty smiled shyly, and I noticed that another droplet of sweat was already forming. Mandy swabbed, Rod counted us back in, and we were on air less than three minutes after I'd left. The next five minutes were fine. Rusty told us how it would only take two cans of Super shine to clean an entire 747, and it didn't seem hard to believe. I must admit that by this time I was kind of wondering what was in the stuff. The pile of metal in front of us was gleaming so much it was starting to hurt my eyes. I got Rusty to tell us his story about working in his mother's garage for ten years, coming up with the formula, then decided it was time to take another call. And that's where the evening went a little weird. Hi, I said, smiling directly to camera one. So, who do we have come to talk with us now? The normal response to this is the caller's name and location, utterly promptly and clearly. They've been briefed by an operator, and most of them blurt the information out super fast, as if eager to prove they can follow instructions properly, and will make a great addition to the programme. This time, there was a silence. Which is fine. Sometimes people get overawed once they realise they are really on air. The tactic, then, is to ask them a very simple question. "'to start them off. "'Have you already experienced Supershine's cleaning miracles collar?' "'I asked. "'Or do you have a question for friend Rusty here before you try it? "'Usually, that'll do it.' "'The silence continued, however, "'and I began to let my right hand wander up toward my neck, "'in preparation for the agreed code for cutting a collar off. "'But then the collar spoke. "'He's not Rusty.' The voice was deep and ragged and wet and rough. My heart sank. Every now and then, one of the directors, Rod in particular, would let a weird one slip through. The stated intention was keeping it real. But as Rod wouldn't know real if it slapped him upside the head, I believed it was more likely to be about fucking up the presenter for the delight of the assembled spear carriers. Kind of irresponsible when the product was shifting so well, but that's assholes for you. Well, not literally, of course, I smiled, winsomely. But you know what? It wouldn't surprise me one bit to find that Super Shine wasn't only great with stains and tarnish, but could handle a little spot of rust as well. In fact, I was just going to ask, His name isn't Rusty, the voice said. "'Sounded like the guy had the world's worst ever cold. "'Or flu. Or maybe the plague. "'Well, no, it's kind of a nickname, isn't it?' I chuckled. "'No one gets called Rusty right off the bat, do they? "'Just like some of my friends call me Jim. "'And so, caller, while we're talking, what's your name?' "'There was no reply. "'Screw this,' I thought. "'I very obviously scratched my Adam's apple.' In other words, get this loser off air. Meanwhile, I turned to Rusty, who was starting to look real nervous. It's often the way with the guests. When things start well, they can get lulled into forgetting that they're on live television. But it's a perilous relaxation. The smallest upset can unsettle them for good. So how about that, Rusty? I asked, holding his eyes to lock him back into where he was and what he was doing. Obviously Super Shine isn't going to be able to cope if something's totally covered in rust, kind of falling apart, but how about a little spot or two? Rusty opened his mouth to speak, but then a very bizarre noise came over the studio monitor. It sounded like a loud, liquid cough, mixed up with the sound of a handful of nails being dropped on a metal surface. Whoa! I apologise for that, viewers. I laughed. Little technical glitch here in the studio. Don't know if you heard it at home. Just goes to show that we really are live tonight in your living room, live and alive, bringing you the very best in bargains 24-7 and right around the clock. So, then the noise happened again. I laughed once more, throwing my hands up in the air for good measure, as if helpless with mirth at the hilarious events which tumbled through life. Not just my life, you understand, but the lives of the viewers at home too. Then something else came over the speakers. The deep, broken voice said, That's my name. What? I said, momentarily thrown. That's my name, the voice repeated. Then a strange liquid noise rumbled through the speakers again. That's it. That noise is your name? Yes. Well, make sure you spell it out when you talk to our purchase operators, I said with a wink directly into camera, to the normal man and woman on the couch because I'm not sure they'll have come across that one before. Eastern European, is it? No. Well, okay then. I know that we have many, many other viewers out there who really want to share their experiences with Rusty's Super Shine Polish with us. So maybe if... It's not his. By now, I was finally beginning to get pissed off. The entire exchange had probably only actually taken 40 seconds so far. But that's a long time on live television. Rusty was looking extremely wary again, and a whole army of perspiration drops were massed at the hairline, ready to roll down his face. That could not happen, not on my watch. Nobody wants to buy something from a guy who's sweating like a pig. I made the cut sign again, even more clearly. Jim, there's something odd going on. This voice didn't come out over the speakers, but only into my earpiece. It was Rod. I turned to Rusty and cheerfully suggested he show us his polish working magic on the second candlestick, which was weak, but I needed a few seconds' cover. As I watched him get to this, I raised my eyebrows quickly. Just about the only way I could communicate to the box, I needed to hear more. Rod spoke again, and what he said was strange. We can't get this joker off the air. I took the risk and risked a glance off. Normally, you never do this. You look directly to the camera, at the object, or at the civilian co-host. Anywhere else looks weird to the viewer at home, reminding them you're in a studio. But I swept my eyes quickly over the window to the director's booth. Their lair was sealed from the studio so chatter and text speak didn't leak into live microphones, and saw Rod was standing and looking directly at me. His hands held up in mime quality. I have no fucking clue what is going on! Behind him, a couple of techs were moving quickly around the room, fiddling with wires. By this time, I had done many, many hours of live television. I'd never seen something like this before. I realised then and then that I was entering new and uncharted territory. "'He has stolen it,' said the speaker voice loudly. "'Stolen what?' I said. "'His so-called polish. It is not his. It belongs to us.' I was still trying to conjure a response to this when I heard Rod's voice in my ear again. He wasn't speaking directly to me this time, but what he said was so weird I decided from then on I was just going to ignore everything except what was happening in front of me. Rod's voice was on the edge of cracking. What the fuck do you mean? He was shouting to someone. Time is slowing down! I assumed he was ragging out some technician and it was a geek wires and sockets thing. Whatever. Their problem, not mine. If they couldn't get this idiot off the air, I'd just have to plough on regardless. The show must go on. Always. This was precisely what I got paid the big bucks for. Well, the bucks, anyway. I smiled at camera two, the one currently showing a red light. Well, thank you, caller. It's been really great to hear your own special perspective on this. But just right now, I want to ask Rusty here something. I turned to my co-host, the first time I'd looked directly at him for maybe a minute or two. I should have checked back before. He'd got stressed, nervous, a big old dose of stage fright. The line of sweat droplets I'd seen forming earlier had decided to all go over the top at once and fresh ranks were following in their wake, taking with them what appeared to be a thick layer of makeup. Every guest gets some pancake to smooth out the blockchains and variations and make everyone look nicer under the lights. This makeup was a lot thicker than that, though, and, I noticed, looked kind of like... latex. I stared at Rusty. Rusty looked back at me. I noticed then that his eyes were perhaps suspiciously blue, too, like they were contacts and that where the make-up was running, or melting, or whatever it was doing, the skin underneath seemed to be both rough and warty, and also a unusual colour. "'Rusty?' I asked suspiciously. "'Are you green?' He turned away suddenly, tilting his head toward the speaker hanging above us, out of shot, and barked something angrily at it, and now his voice didn't sound like it had before— It didn't sound like he was from the south. It sounded like a large bucket of nuts and bolts dropping down an old drainpipe. Then he made another sound, even louder. The force of the utterance caused a whole strip of skin to fall off one side of his face, revealing something that looked like a piece of steak that had been lying in a parking lot for a couple of weeks. Okay, I said into the silence. So I'm guessing maybe you're not from East Texas after all. The voice from the speaker spoke once again. No, he is not, it said. And his polish belongs to us. In reality, it is a foodstuff, and we are running perilously low. It must be returned to us. Whoa, I said. Back up. Who's us? Who am I talking to? All around me, cameraman and production assistants and random techs were frozen like statues. No one was doing anything anymore. They were just staring up at the speaker from which the voice was coming. And all looked like they'd never move again. Like their minds so wanted to be somewhere else that their bodies had been left to their own devices for a while. But I'm different. Used to the challenges of going live. And a goddamn professional too. We are from a planet you do not have a name for, the voice said. In our tongue, it is called... And he made a sound I'm not even going to try to describe. You wouldn't want to hear it outside your house late at night, that's for sure. The being you call Rusty is one of us. We are allowed to leave the ship every now and then on a strict rotation basis, but he has outstayed his leave and he is selling what belongs to us alone. Wait a second, I said, holding my hand up. Ship? What kind of ship? A scout ship. From where? Okay, right, the unpronounceable place. I turned to the being that I had previously been introduced to as Rusty. But what are you doing here? Why, I have been experiencing some technical difficulties. Rusty bit muttered. His voice now halfway between southern drawl and hacking flu cough. Because the captain is a complete... And then, suddenly, he, it, vanished. The thing that had been rusty was gone, leaving only a small pile of clothes, two vivid blue contact lenses, and a head and beard wig lying on the floor. And over the speaker came the sound of something very bad and physical and permanent happening. Suddenly, there was movement amongst the assembled people in the studio. Some running, a little shrieking, a lot of men and women crying out. But it didn't amount to much. I heard someone in back shouting that all the doors had mysteriously become locked. I glanced over at the window to the control booth once more, and saw everyone in there still standing still, watching me through the glass. I think Rod was still shouting things in my ear too, but I wasn't listening. He was never any help. ''If you're some kind of scout ship,'' I said, talking directly to the disembodied voice again, ''how come you can't just phone home, contact the mothership or whatever, tell them you've got issues and to send help?'' There was a pause, then something that sounded a little like a human cough. ''We're not supposed to be here,'' the voice said. ''Why?'' ''Long story,'' the voice said. ''You got lost?'' ''No.'' The voice said, irritably, as if I'd opened a huge, great can of worms. We were going to invade, but there was some last-minute discussion on board over the ethics of the thing. Your world is protected, theoretically, and there was some heated discussion. A small amount of equipment damage ensued. The remote control for the radial neotransponder matrix got stepped on. And without it, the ship doesn't work. So you're stuck? Yes. For how long? There was something like a sigh then, a sound that reverberated through the studio like a gust of wind wandering alone through the Grand Canyon in the dead of night. 11.5 thousand of your years. Jesus, I said. That's quite a layover. Yes. To be honest, the time's beginning to drag. I'm not surprised. Holy cow. Where are you exactly? In a mountain. In a... I don't want to talk about it. And you're completely alone here. There's a crew down in Key West, but not our kind. They're spindly. And assholes, actually and they won't help. Have you tried changing the batteries? There was a pause. Excuse me? Well, I said, this radial transponder matrix widget, or whatever, sounds like the kind of thing that's going to need some juice, right? Couldn't it just be the
4: batteries went flat? Have you checked? There was a long... Long pause.
0: I mean really, really long. Another cough. Then a further pause. Finally. I don't believe our technicians have Explicitly evaluated that possibility. No. You think maybe they... Should? Even if your suggestion has merit. The batteries of our kind are completely different from yours. Actually, do you say different from or different to? Whichever, I said. You're the boss. They are both different from and different to your batteries. They are trans-quantum piezo-structures, one mile square in five dimensions, and not available here. Have you tried a universal remote? Universal remote? Sure, I said. In fact, wait here. I ran out of the studio, back into the green room, and searched through the various piles of crap spread all over it, Spare jackets and ties, bits and pieces left from other random segments, free samples from previous special hours. After a minute, thank God, I found what I was looking for and which I thought I'd remembered seeing a couple of nights before. Then I strode back into the studio, already talking direct to camera as I hit the floor. Do you suffer from remote proliferation? I asked. Is your den deluged under a pile of remotes? your sitting room swamped with switches and kitchen conflumped with controls, each one designed to work with only one piece of equipment. Do you have one for the television, one for the satellite, one for DVD, CD, maybe even one for the cat? You do? Right. So do I. Or I did, that is, until I discovered the Relco Universal Omni Remote. I triumphantly held up the remote I'd found. It caught one of the big lights overhead and glittered like a chalice. Truly, my friends, this is a leap forward in both technology and tidiness, a breakthrough in convenience and style. I'll tell you this right now, and regular viewers know I don't say this often. I've even got one of these babies myself at home. I'd have two, but... And here I paused for a trademark winsome smile to camera. I was back in the zone. You'll only need one, right? We don't have a den, said the voice over the speaker. This is a spaceship. I get that, I said. My point is you could maybe use one of these things. We program it to work a radial neotransponder monkey, or whatever it is you said. Hmm, said the voice. Hold on a minute. There was a brief humming sound, followed by utter silence. Then the voice came back. Put it in the middle of the floor. What? The device of which you speak. Put it in the middle of the floor, with a minimum of two trejillion nippets of clear space all around it. That's approximately a yard in your currency. I walked out from behind the counter and placed the remote carefully in the middle of the floor. Then I stepped back, shooing the cameramen and production flunkies away, so there was a lot of space around it. You got it, I said. Now what? There was a sudden rushing sound, followed by a brief whir. Both sounded as if they came from inside my own head. Then a simple and very loud ping! And the remote on the floor had disappeared. And everything was silent. There was not a sound in the studio. Everyone stood waiting. It was as if the world outside disappeared. Then, from over the speaker, came a noise that sounded like distant and somewhat relieved cheering. Everyone in the studio looked at each other. Well, who knew, said the rough, liquid voice coming back. So the monkey people finally came up with something useful. Point to you. You're welcome, I said. So now you're free to go? Our engines are coming up to speed as we speak. We are going to need that tin of polish on the counter there, though. Leave no man behind. Or evidence, I mean. I picked up the tin of Supershine and went around to put it in the cleared space in the floor. Wind far ping, and it was gone. Remain right where you are, the voice said. I stayed put, frozen in the middle of the floor. You have been helpful people of Earth. We are grateful. Now, we're going to have to destroy you all. What? You know too much. We know shit, I protested. Really? Zip? Nada? Especially me? Sorry, the voice said. Health and safety. People began to break down in earnest then. They knew this was the end they understood suddenly that this was irrevocable, that no argument, however cogitant, well-argued, or frankly even right, would ever make a difference once health and safety had been invoked. Well, look, Christ, I spluttered anyway, knowing I had to keep talking until the very end. That seems kind of harsh, you know. We fixed your, you know, that thing that was broken? We helped you out, right? No, the voice said. You did. Say goodbye. I looked around the studio, at the people all terrified and flinching, the tear-running faces and trembling shoulders. I glanced at Max and Clive and Jeff, the camera and lights crew, not looking so tough now, at Mandy from Makeup and Trix and Pinky, the PA girls, and finally through the window at Rod and his open-mouthed producers and other familiars. At these people, my colleagues and acquaintances, the people I had worked with, these fellow toilers at the sharp end of retail. These humans, every single one of them remains burned into my mind. They're the last I ever saw. Good ba- was all I got out. Then my mind went white, and there was a sound of wind, and then a whir, and then a ping. The viewers at home never saw me vanish, or what happened to Rusty they never even heard the strange voice over the speakers. All they saw was a wacky few seconds where James Richard seemed to be going very seriously off-message before the home mall signal went fuzzy for a couple of minutes. Then the channel abruptly left the air forever as the studio, warehouse and surrounding city block was vaporised by what was later explained, I gather, as an unexpected meteorite. I guess the CIA or NSA or some other bunch of spooks covered the whole thing up somehow. Clearly, someone back at home knows where Earth stands in the bigger picture. Since I've been away, I discovered there's even a secret website at www... Oh, I guess I shouldn't say, but that's how I know the official US government classification for what happened to me. A close encounter of the 17th kind. One involving a commercial transaction conducted over some form of mass telecommunication including, but not limited to television, radio or particle net sub-rotation, and involving individual items valued at $100 or less. It's kind of rare. In fact, I think I may have been the first. To survive, anyhow. So, there's a scoop on how I came to be here, like you asked. Edit as you see fit, of course. I know it's kind of long for a press release. I'm sure my new agent will want other cuts too. The stuff about my name won't mean a lot to a guy called plus minus S G 273 fx 2 I guess. Anywho, got to go, bro. The bright lights call. I'm five minutes away from a two-hour pan-galactic special for a consignment of mesquite-roasted Alpha Centurion pingle nuts and their associated serving dishes and cookware. Yum yum. The buying public awaits eagerly, always, and James Richard is their friend, advisor, and honest guide through the retail jungle whatever damn planet they're from.
2: There you go, don't forget, copyright is Michael Marshall-Smith. Michael, thank you so much for that great story. And, well, that wraps up Oral Delights, number 43, this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it's kind of, I hope I've cleared some things up at the beginning of this show. Like I say, don't forget if you want to support the show, pop over to the website and £2.50 for the monthly donations would be fantastic. If you want to drop me an email on any subject, please, I'd like to hear from you. It's uh, rather strange just talking to myself in this living room. I like to see and hear what's going on in the real world. <laughs> Starshipsover at gmail.com. Until next week, my good friends aboard the sofa. Just like to say, good night from me.
3: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and autistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting and story.
1: 3, two, one.